Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Chris Mercado, a major in the U.S. Army and founder of Objective Zero, a suicide prevention app with the goal of reducing military suicide. Chris, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing really fantastic. Thanks. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for asking. Um, well, I, I'm really excited to talk with you um, today. I know that we had um, a few years ago when you won the Military Times Soldier of the Year for the Army um, Award, we had touch base um, on some of the work that you were doing around suicide prevention. But you know, first, we just want to get to know you. Um, what is your background? So I'm a 2004 graduate of the University of South Dakota. Uh, I commissioned uh, from the University of South Dakota's ROTC program into the Army as an infantry officer uh, in 2004. Uh, originally, uh, you know, I claimed South Dakota as my home, but uh, I'm a military brat. So I spent uh, kind of my first 12 years uh, as a military brat growing up in Germany. And then my parents retired to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is where I went to middle school and, uh, and high school. Uh, and then out of high school, I enlisted in the Army and served up in Fort Richardson, Alaska for a few years. And then uh, after my enlistment was up, I came back to South Dakota and went to Vermilion, where I studied criminal justice and civic leadership studies. You know, did you always know that you wanted to join the military then? Uh, honestly, no. I, I think uh, in middle school and high school, I never really had a, a, a burning desire to join the military. It wasn't until... Uh, I think my senior year of high school that I really decided that that's what I wanted to give a shot. So, well, and I, I guess what influenced that then? Well, like I said, I'm, I'm from a military family. So my, my mother served, my father served, my grandfather served, my sister also served. So in, in many respects, it was a family business. Um, but I think, you know, when I was in Sioux Falls and I had an opportunity to speak with the, uh, the national guard recruiter, that was what really got my kind of attention that I could serve part-time, but not have to be full-time. Uh, and so I enlisted originally into the South Dakota army national guard and spent a little bit of time with the, uh, first battalion, 147th field artillery and had such a phenomenal experience and, and really realized I loved the military service that I wanted to do it full-time. And that was when I made that, that decision to re-enlist on active duty, and, and that's when I went up to Alaska. You know, when, when you were at USD, you were part of the ROTC program, correct? That's right. What, what was that program like? What's that experience like? It's a phenomenal experience. So many people don't realize that uh, the Reserve Officer Training Corps is really a leadership development program, and so it complements the education that you're getting there at the University of South Dakota, especially for someone like me who was going through the civic leadership program. I was kind of getting a double dose of leadership skills uh, and education. And so um, the program, you know, there's, a, you know, a physical component to it where you, you know, you work out with your classmates and you, you get yourself physically stronger. There's a classroom component to it where you're learning about leadership in the classroom and specifically about the, you know, the military applications of leadership. Uh, there's some weekend labs that you get, you know, the opportunity to participate in as well, which includes everything from like field training, you know, exercises, learning how to uh, move as a member of a team or squad. Uh, 
Uh, and then it prepares you for kind of your culminating training experience, which for me at the time was out of Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, it's called the Leadership Development and Assessment Course. And uh, it's a month-long course where you go and you uh, you know, kind of immerse yourself into a platoon and learn you know, what it's going to be like as a platoon there when you commission into the, uh, the active duty force. You know, when you were at USD, I mean, th- that's obviously a pretty formative experience, um, you know, the college years for anyone. Um, you did it kind of in an accelerated trajectory. I-, I don't know if you could just like comment on how quickly you did your undergraduate studies and, and what that was like. <laughs> yeah, I was on a little bit of a, a fast timeline. Um, you know, there was a little bit of history involved um, at the time. Uh, you know, I was going through ROTC and I wanted to serve and I wanted to serve on active duty. And I arrived uh, in December of 2002. And if, if you recall, that was just a few months after uh, September 11th. And, um, you know, I, I had left my unit uh, on active duty to come back and go to school. Uh, and shortly after I left that unit, it deployed to Afghanistan. So I, I had this sense of uh, having, you know, maybe left my unit when they needed me. Uh, and there was this desire to get back into the force to, you know, perform that function that I was training for and preparing for, that is military leadership when it matters most. And, you know, I was, I was young and, you know, I, I didn't really maybe understand uh, how long it was going to take. And so I, I tried to take as many courses as I possibly could to graduate as early as I could so I didn't miss the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, and of course, you know, I kind of glossed over that, but we did invade Iraq uh, while I was there at the University of South Dakota. Uh, and so I, you know, I recalled, you know, being a young 10 year old, I think, during um, the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And that conflict only lasted, I believe, 100 days from start to finish. And so, I, you know, if history was any guide, I was very worried about having missed my opportunity to serve when it mattered most. So I was overloading myself on credit hours, and I graduated in two years. But in fairness, I did have some college credits already completed. So when I was enlisted up in Alaska, I was taking night school. Uh, I didn't complete a full four years in two years. Did you have a favorite professor, I guess, during your time at USD? Oh, my goodness. I could list so many incredible professors. Uh, Dr. Mike Roach, for example, one of my favorite professors. I I will never forget the lessons of his criminal procedure class. Um, Dr. Richardson, he he taught this amazing course. He was of the political studies program. Uh, Wonderful course called Politics and Leadership in Literature. That class and the lessons in that class remain with me to this day. And then, of course, Dr. Matt Fairholm and Dr. Rich Bronstein, uh, with their conflict resolution class and their, you know, skills of leadership and leadership foundations classes, those those lessons still resonate with me to this day. Yeah. So when you left um, USD, um, would you go immediately serve overseas? What, what what was the transition like from that? I commissioned uh, in the infantry. I think it was 18 December of 2004, and I left for Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, shortly after the new year, maybe the 5th of January of 2005, arriving at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I had to complete my basic officer leader course. Uh, they now call it BOLIC. At the time, it was the infantry officer basic course. So the, the basic infantry uh, officer course. And 
at the end of that, I had to attend a few other military schools to include the mechanized leaders course and then ranger school. And all in all, it took me about 10 months of additional training before I showed up at my unit. So I arrived to Fort Carson, Colorado, where I served with the 2nd Battalion, 12th Infantry Regiment as an anti-tank and mortar platoon leader from October, roughly September, October of, uh, gosh, I believe that was 2005, uh, until, or, no, 2004 or five. I can't recall. Anyways, uh, yeah, I served with them for about 10 months, and then we deployed to Iraq, uh, Baghdad, Iraq, from October of 2006 through January of 2008. So it wasn't right away. There was there was about a year, just short of a year maybe, before I uh, deployed. Yeah, did you have then, um, you know, you, you talked about kind of your accelerated trajectory and wanting to, you know, kind of rejoin your um, battalion. I mean, did you have like a sense of anticipation then going there? Was at that, that point... Um, you know, the war had been going on for several years. I, I'm just curious, like, what was your mindset going into a deployment like that overseas? Great question. So I think my initial uh, assessment was that the war, and well, I say war, but the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan could be over quickly. And while taking one of Dr. Kurt Hackemer's classes on military history, you know, he provided me several you know things that I could read about insurgency and counterinsurgency. And I, after reading those, I think it was very apparent to me that this was not going to be over quickly and that I had some time to really prepare myself. And so I spent that time in between, you know, when I graduated and when I actually deploy- deployed in preparing myself. And, um, you know, there really was no sense of anticip- anticipation or, or worry. I felt well prepared, not just by the University of South Dakota and the education I had received, but by the training I had received in, in, in the Army. You know, so then talk about what life was like um, in Iraq. You you would also serve in Afghanistan, correct? I have, yeah. So between all of my deployments, I spent uh, just under 16 months in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, two years uh, in Afghanistan between Tangier, Afghanistan, and Kunduz, Afghanistan on two separate deployments. I also served in Israel's West Bank uh, in 2014 during Israel's summer war with Hamas, which was called Operation Protective Edge. I also served in Camp Lumiere, Djibouti, Africa in 2015. And then I have some operational experiences throughout the Pacific in Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and Japan as well. I mean, so, you know, as much as you can kind of share, I mean, what was life like during that initial deployment? During my initial deployment to Iraq, life was, uh, I would say, chaotic. I think it would be a very good description uh, of what life was like. So on my first deployment, I was embedded into an Iraqi army unit on a military transition team. So I was a combat advisor provided by the U.S. Army to the Iraqis to help ready their force to take lead security responsibility for their assigned area of Baghdad. And I was partnered with the 2nd Battalion, 5th Brigade, 6th Iraqi Army Division. And they were based out of Fab Honor, Iraq, which was you know kind of on the, the north side of the green zone in central Baghdad. And we were responsible for kind of a, a large swath of central Baghdad, stretching from uh, the Karata Peninsula, uh, kind of west, about halfway out to the Baghdad International Airport. It was a very dangerous time. Uh, you know, I think improvised explosive devices or roadside bombs really 
you know, kind of are the signature uh, weapon when I think of the Iraq war and the adaptation that occurred between the insurgents uh, and the U.S. Uh, military at the time. You know, I think about IEDs, and IEDs were, were an ever-present threat, uh, and it was kind of this constant cycle of adaptation and, you know, trying to think about how these weapons could be used against us and what we could do to, to, to minimize the likelihood or probability that they could be used against us. Um, and, you know, at the same time, trying to balance, um, you know, that, that ever persistent threat of, you know, improvised explosive devices or insurgent ambushes with trying to train and prepare this force to take lead security responsibility for its area. Uh, it was very challenging, very, very difficult time indeed. You know, then in Afghanistan, was it similar, um, experience? I mean, what was, what was your mission in Afghanistan? Very different experience. In fact, every one of my deployments has been completely different from any other deployment I've ever had. So for example, on my first deployment to Afghanistan from 2008 to 2009, I was an operations officer on a provincial reconstruction team or PRT. And a provincial reconstruction team is kind of an ad hoc organization. Uh, it's a joint interagency, you know, organization that included some you know, elements of the U.S. Army, the active force, the reserve force. We had members of the Department of State, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the uh, Department of Agriculture. We also had members of the Air Force on our team. Uh, and we were cobbled together and trained out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And our task was to help uh, develop uh, and you know, kind of reconstruct our province of Afghanistan, which was called Panjir Province. Uh, and so during that deployment, you know, I was helping to plan and synchronize our reconstruction and development operations. In other words, we were building roads, we were building schools, we were building basic health clinics, micro hydroelectric plants to help provide power generation. Uh, it was a very different experience than the, the deployment to Iraq just, you know, a few months before. You know, now these number of years later, I mean, what do you make of the situations in Iraq and Afghanistan? It seems that we, um, you know, have removed quite a few of our, our troops in both of those those countries. I mean, how do you, I guess, reflect on the experience that you had then and the way the situation kind of turned out now? Really, really difficult question, right? Um, because I haven't been back in actually a long time. You know, I, I sit here and think about it and it's been eight years, almost a decade, since my last deployment to Afghanistan. And although I, I did serve in Israel in 2014 and in Africa in 2015, you know, those experiences were, were very different than, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, so when I, when I reflect back on, you know, my experiences as a young officer in Iraq or Afghanistan, I, I still think of them in a very favorable light, which is, you know, I believe very strongly that we made a very positive impact, uh, you know, on, on the local community where I was serving and what I can speak to. I, you know, I know that we had a positive impact both in Baghdad and in Afghanistan on my two deployments there. Um, you know, with what I saw and what I can speak to, you know, we did a fantastic job preparing our Iraqi army unit to take lead security responsibility. In fact, the unit that I was assigned to was among the first Iraqi army units to take lead security responsibility in Baghdad. And it's, it's an accomplishment that I was very proud of. And they, they were fantastic to serve with. In fact, the battalion commander of that, that unit, Colonel Ali, uh, you know, I was a lieutenant at the time and 
I would have been honored to have Colonel Ali having, you know, been a colonel or a battalion commander in the U.S. Army, which is, you know, speaks to just how much I respected him as a leader. Um, so, you know, looking back on that experience in particular, very positive. Uh, what we did in Afghanistan, both in you know Panjir and in Kunduz, where, where I led counterinsurgency operations, again I can say with you know what I saw, what I experienced, and what I can speak to, really positive. You know, we we had a tremendous impact on the daily lives of the communities that we lived in, and you know you know to Panjir, for example, uh, I'll never forget this one particular uh, experience I had. We had we maybe been in country just a couple weeks. Uh, and we picked up some of the construction projects of the unit that we had replaced. And so we were able to complete the construction of a local girls school, a school that we built for um, local Afghan girls. And, uh, you know, as soon as we cut the ribbon, the next morning I woke up loud sounds. I was like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? Is there a riot? I walk outside. I look and there's uh, I would call a gaggle, maybe, you know, a hundred uh, you know, girls aged like five through about 10 years old walking together to their class. They had their, you know, they're clutching their, their books in their backpacks. And, you know, that was the moment that I said, man, we are really uh, doing important work here right now. And it really gave me a lot of, you know, meaningful purpose uh, to, to be a part of that mission. And so when I look back on those experiences, I know that we made a positive impact uh, every day. Yeah, in addition to obviously all of the work that you've done um, serving in the military, you've also taken on you know other projects. We referenced this at the beginning, um, but you've done a lot with like suicide prevention. Just first of all, how did you get um, I guess interested in this sort of advocacy, um, and and what drew you I guess to it? Yeah, another great question, tough question. Um, I originally was kind of impacted by suicide while I was in, in high school in Sioux Falls. I actually lost several of my friends and classmates to suicide. And at the time, I believe, you know, that was kind of what happens sometimes to young people who maybe don't have the, the life experience and the, the resiliency skills that they need uh, to overcome, you know, a, you know, a significant life event. Uh, I thought, you know, perhaps we would grow out of it. But that's not what I actually experienced over the course of my life. In fact, at the end of my first deployment to Iraq, we lost several members of our unit to suicide, uh, including one that hit particularly close to home, Staff Sergeant Thaddeus Montgomery. He was one of my squad leaders in the very first unit that I served as a platoon leader of. That is in Delta Company, 2nd Battalion, 12th Infantry Regiment out of Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, I lost... Uh, Monty, Staff Sergeant Montgomery, on the 20th of January, 2010, he was in Afghanistan um, at a separate location. I had since redeployed. I was back at Fort Benning, Georgia at the time when I learned of his, his passing, and he died of suicide. Uh, and, I, and I felt that something needed to be done, but I didn't really know what to do. And it wasn't until the fall of 2014 when I noticed that another friend and former a uh, comrade of mine, Staff Sergeant Justin Miller, who was a squad mate of Sergeant Montgomery's, was struggling with his transition out of the military. And I saw the signs playing out on social media, and I just knew I needed to do something. So I reached out, contacted Justin, and we connected over a phone call. And that phone call lasted six hours. And on that call, I asked him directly if he was thinking about hurting himself. Justin, you know, he kind of laughed. I'll never forget this. He laughed and said if his weapon had been loaded, 
he wouldn't be on the phone with me right then. Uh, and, you know, a little overwhelming. Uh, I had received some suicide prevention training in the military, but I've never had to use it in practice. But I knew I needed to stay on the line with him. So at the end of the, the six-hour call, I asked him again if he was thinking about hurting himself. And he said he did. You know, he wasn't. He, he felt fine. He needed someone to talk to, someone who wasn't going to judge him, someone who was just going to listen to him uh, and you know help him ease some of those burdens. And I realized at the end of that call that what Justin was experiencing wasn't unique, that, that many service members and veterans are struggling with the same exact things. And that we could probably uh, replicate that call between Justin and I at scale and create a platform for other veterans and service members to connect with people in order to prevent suicide. And so together, we formed a team and we built a platform that we call Objective Zero that uses wireless technology to connect service members, whether they're active duty or reserves, veterans, their family members and caregivers to a nationwide network of peer support uh, using a mobile app and connecting them through voice, video, or text message. And we built this app and released it for free uh, to anyone to use. They can you know, download it for free and they can use it for free. Uh, we just wanted to make a difference in people's lives. You know, so obviously that's a super powerful story. I mean, you talked about the notion that he was struggling with the transition you know, out of the military. I mean, is that the reason why suicide rates are so much higher with, with veterans? Is it, you know, obviously the past traumatic experiences that they've had or possibly had in service? I mean, what, what contributes to, I guess, the suicide rates amongst veterans? That's a, another great question, but there is no one single cause. If there was, uh, speaking candidly, this would probably be a much easier problem to solve. But the reality is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of causes and, you know, correlations to, you know, veteran and service member suicide. Um, for Justin, you know, in his particular case, you know, his, his traumas date all the way back to his childhood. So he had kind of a, a long history of childhood trauma that informed his experiences in Iraq. It was a very difficult deployment that Justin and I and Sergeant Montgomery all served together in Iraq. Very challenging. We lost 18 members of our unit. Uh, and that was just in our U.S. Army unit. I lost an additional, I think, 55 of my Iraqi partners on that deployment. Uh, so very, very, um, you know, we would call it like a high-intensity deployment. Uh, and so I think for, you know, some people like Justin, you know, he had a history of um, childhood trauma. You know, he had some issues with alcohol and drug abuse in his teen years. Uh, definitely traumatic experiences in the military. And then as he's transitioning out of the military, uh, two very important things happened. One, he started to lose contact with those that he was serving with. Uh, when you're in the military, you're, you're in such close proximity with others, right? You build incredibly strong bonds of camaraderie. And when you leave the military, many times those bonds, uh, I don't want to say are severed permanently, but they're definitely severed. They're not like they were because the military keeps moving. It's an extremely high-paced environment. And when someone transitions out, they're not as well-connected. And so they lose those meaningful relationships. But then they also lose that meaningful purpose that they had while they were in service. Uh, you know, the ability as a 25-year-old man 
to deploy to Baghdad and have the responsibility of partnering with an you know, Iraqi army unit and helping prepare them to take over responsibility of securing their homeland was an incredibly meaningful experience. And then in Panjir, Afghanistan, you know, being responsible for uh, reconstructing and developing that, that province, that very historic province of Afghanistan. And then later in Kunduz, as a company commander, I was given responsibility to conduct counterinsurgency operations in North Afghanistan. Uh, you know, in Israel, the army entrusted me to advise the, uh, the Palestinian security forces. And so, you know, what I'm speaking to is kind of this, um, you know, consistent trend of, you know, having connection to a higher meaningful purpose. And for Justin, you know, he lost that access to meaningful purpose. And so all of these things coalesced at kind of this one moment in time, and it just overwhelmed him. And, you know, that's why we needed to, you know, reconnect and, you know, kind of provide that meaningful purpose, which was creating the Objective Zero Foundation for him. You know, I think mental health and suicide is such a stigmatized topic. I mean, is there anything that you've learned since you've become involved with this work that you would want others to know about suicide or just mental health in general? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about the stigma, you know, there's many stigmas in the military uh, and stereotypes in the military. You know, many stereotypes of, you know, service members are that, you know, we must always be ready. We must always be strong. Uh, there's a stigma against seeking help. Uh, I do believe that that stigma is being eroded uh, in the military you know, community and military culture. Uh, I have personally observed many army leaders, senior leaders, you know, they talk now openly that, yeah, I'm going out and getting counseling. In fact, just before this call, I had noticed on Twitter, a very senior army leader had, you know, he, he, he tagged me on Twitter and said, Hey, I, I have no shame in saying it. I go to counseling all the time. 10, 15 years ago, you never would have seen that. It just never would have happened. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of, heartened by the fact that you know senior leaders in the military are now working actively to combat that stigma, but it, it does still exist. Uh, many people look down on others who you know say, hey, I need to take a moment. Yeah, I need to focus on me. Um, but I think that that needs to end, right? Because sometimes we are strong and we can help others. And at other times, we, we need a helping hand. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's pretty normal, especially given what we're seeing and experiencing in places like Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, I'm curious. This question just kind of came to the top of my head, but obviously just with the situation with COVID, I mean, that has, I think, brought a lot of mental health problems to the forefront. Um, how have how has that affected the military? I mean, how, how have uh, you know the, the military adapted to COVID generally, or how has it affected your service, but also how has it affected, I guess, like the mental health um, of people who serve? That's a, yeah, that's a tough question to answer, uh, because right now we don't yet know. It does take some time, you know, to do the research. Uh, what we do know is that early indications are that in 2020, suicide rates in the military are up over 2019 by as much as 20%. And that's pretty significant. In the U.S. Army, initial indicators are that suicide rates are as, are up as much as 30%, which is incredibly alarming. We don't know necessarily that that is directly, you know, correlated to or caused by the coronavirus, uh, you know, in the outbreak of the global pandemic. It's possible that the second, third order effects of the global pandemic are what's causing this spike. 
uh, it's also possible that there's no correlation at all. Uh, so in short, we, we need more time, I think, to research and analyze to determine if, in fact, that's what caused it. Um, but having said that, uh, I think that it's fair to say that, you know, with economic uncertainty, you know, obviously in, in I think, March, February, March of 2020, we saw a tremendous you know, dip in our economy. We saw unemployment rates rising. Uh, there was a lot of economic uncertainty. Uh, we also saw many um, many Americans were, were dying as a result of the coronavirus, and many were being infected. Uh, and so there was this you know uncertainty surrounding whether or not you could get the coronavirus or a loved one had the coronavirus. Uh, many had you know concerns about housing, and I think that. In short, there's probably a number of factors that are contributing to it, you know, whether that's economic, you know, hardship or, you know, uncertainty and fear, this kind of persistent danger. Uh, but yes, I, I think that uh, it's very concerning seeing what's happening in 2020 in terms of the rates of suicide. You know, you, you spoke about um, just the idea that you needed to stay on the phone. Um, what what can you do with someone um, if you are worried that they're in a, in a moment where they might commit suicide? I mean, what are the best practices? Yeah, in short, if you think that someone is imminently at risk of self-harm, and by that I mean they indicate to you that, that they intend on taking their own life, and they have a plan, and they have access to lethal means, you know, they are, they are definitely at the highest possible risk. And you should either connect them to emergency services, you know, call 911. Uh, if they're a veteran, you can connect them with the veterans crisis line. Um, in fact, I would say that someone who's imminently at risk of self-harm needs a higher level of care uh, than a peer like myself could provide. Right. And so what we're doing with Objective Zero is we're, we're crowdsourcing peer support. You know, and this is probably a level of training below that of the, the experts and the first responders and the professionals. The idea is that we're getting ahead of those you know, downward spirals into suicide by providing peer support as a pre-crisis uh, service. Now, if you speak to someone and you don't think that they're imminently at risk of self-harm or they don't have a plan or they don't have access to lethal means, but you're still concerned, then what you should do is you should just listen and, and try and understand and be as empathetic and caring as possible without judgment, right? Uh, and I would also say you shouldn't try and solve their problems for them. Uh, you should just listen uh, as openly uh, and empathetically as you possibly can. Chris, you, you talked about Objective Zero and the, the, the fact that it has like an app that you can download on your phone. I mean, when did that become available? And can you just tell us a little bit about the, the history of that organization? Absolutely. So like I mentioned, you know, I had reconnected with Staff Sergeant Justin Miller in the fall of 2014. And after that six-hour call, we realized that we could replicate that call between Justin and I at scale for others. So at the time, I was actually attending Georgetown University, their security studies program, pursuing my master's degree. And over the course of the next two years, I kind of conducted research into the issue of veteran and service member suicide. At the time, the 20 push-up challenge was going viral on the internet. Uh, you know, 20, actually, the 22 push-up challenge was going viral on the internet. And, you know, I was very curious to know, you know, was the issue of suicide in the military really a problem? And what I learned absolutely alarmed me. You know, so veterans, uh, 
are twice as likely to die by suicide than their civilian counterparts. Female veterans are especially at risk, as much as 250% more likely to die by suicide than their civilian counterparts. And so Justin and I and a team of friends and colleagues that I had met at Georgetown University collaborated to um, co-found the Objective Zero Foundation. And, you know, our objective is really in its name, right? The Objective Zero Foundation. Our objective is to achieve functional zero or the point at which military service is no longer a distinguishing characteristic of suicide. And what we did is we built a mobile app that's available on Android and iOS, Apple, um, and it connects veterans, service members, their family members, and military caregivers to a nationwide and, and global network of peer support through voice, video, and text. And we launched that app in December of 2017 after we completed a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter. Uh, over a month-long campaign in January of 2017, we sought to raise $35,000, which would help us build our minimally viable product, our MVP, or the most basic version of our app. And it took us almost a full year of development after we successfully raised that money on Kickstarter to launch our first version of the app. So, so I guess, how many versions have you been able to release then since 2017? Many different iterations of it. So, you know, uh, what we call version two of our app, we're actually currently working on. But since we launched our minimally viable product, we've since added all kinds of new tools and capabilities. Um, so, you know, we would have like version 1.01, 1.02. Every time we updated the app, we would include new capabilities. So, for example, we've added all kinds of curated health and wellness resources. Uh, we've also added all kinds of activities, which include meditation and mindfulness training, uh, yoga content, as well as, you know, veteran-owned businesses or, you know, deals specifically for veterans, uh, free or low-cost mental health care, suicide prevention training, just all kinds of activities in there as well. We also built in all kinds of new filtering features because we knew that the person that's most likely to be successful in connecting with, you know, someone who's at risk of self-harm or depression is someone who's been where someone else has been or seen what they've seen. So we built in filters that way an at-risk user can connect with someone they choose, not just the first person who picks up the phone. Uh, so every time we would issue a, uh, an update, we would add, you know, new capabilities to the app. Where would you like to see objective zero go in the future? Great question. So, in fact, next month, we're really excited that we're launching our web version of our app. So, you know, we're now going to be available to a larger you know, audience of people who need support, those who don't have access to a smartphone or who prefer to use their computer over a smartphone to communicate. Um, I also think that in the future, it will be very exciting to integrate some of these new artificial intelligence and machine learning tools. That way we can provide uh, resources to someone who's at risk of depression or self-harm before they even realize they need them. And, you know, of course, that's kind of a big idea in the long term. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the more midterm or short term, we're working on incorporating a chat bot uh, into our app. And we're also incorporating some kind of risk mitigation and identification tools called the Columbia Scale. So we can identify what risk someone is really of, you know, self-harm and connecting them to the right level of trained ambassador.
you know, Chris, is there anything else, I guess, about the topic of, of mental health that you'd like to address? Well, you know, I think one of the most important things when we think about mental health is that you know, there can there should not be a stigma associated with, with seeking help. Uh, I think for too long we have treated mental health as um, something separate and distinct, something that uh, should, should almost be frowned upon or looked down upon. And, you know, as we've all learned in 2020, uh, you know, we need to take care of ourselves. And sometimes we're going to have great days uh, and sometimes we're going to have terrible days. And so, you know, we as a community need to come together and, and look after each other and be concerned about one another because we, you know, we will rise or fall together as a community. Chris, the last question we usually like to ask on the podcast is a little bit more philosophical in nature. And I'm curious with your answer, just because you've obviously traveled all over the world and um, had some pretty unique experiences. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? Wow, what a difficult question. <laughs> what do I know for sure? Okay. I know that uh, whatever we choose to do in life, um, we should always seek to make a difference in the lives of others. And whether that's a small step or a bold leap, all that matters is that you open your heart and try. Uh, I know that the things we do in life are sometimes extremely difficult, uh, but with hard work, it will pay off. And all you need is the persistence to keep going when everything looks like it's falling apart. Chris, that's a great answer. I, I, we always appreciate uh, when people give their perspective, but that was a, that was a good answer. So um, thank you very much for the conversation today. Thank you so much for your service um, and also just for always representing USD. We always uh, appreciate I know you're going to be on campus here in a couple of weeks for the dedication to Patriots Plaza. And we're really excited to welcome you um, back to campus uh, here in a couple of weeks. So thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun and uh, it's always my pleasure.